So a few years uh, back now, 2017, uh, I think it was, there was a guy, a guy called Matthew Bryce. Matthew Bryce was a surfer, lived in Scotland, and one Sunday morning um, in May, I think, 2017, he, he went off to catch some waves off the Kintyre Peninsula on the west coast of Scotland. Um, he got in the water about 11 o'clock, um, uh, but he got swept out to sea by the tides and, and by the wind. He described it later as relentless. Indeed, at one point, having got swept out to sea, he managed to get back to within a mile of the beach, only for the tide to change direction again, which in turn swept him back out to sea. He got to such a point that he just was exhausted from the paddling. It became useless anyway, uh, and he was carried out further into the sea until he found himself alone uh, in the dark in the shipping lane. Um, and, And he, frankly, didn't expect to see the morning. Um, he was actually picked up. Um, uh, his, his warm wetsuit uh, managed to um, stop him from you know, uh, getting too cold, but he, he spent 30 hours in the sea before he was picked up. And, and having gone surfing off the west coast of Scotland, he was picked up 13 miles off the coast of Northern Ireland. It was amazing that he'd survived at all, but what he came away with was a brutal reminder of how difficult it is to swim against the tide. <laughs> right? Something he tried to do for hours and hours and just hadn't been able to manage. And I guess, you know, for those of us, we, we live on an island, don't we? So I guess most of us have been in the water at some point and, uh, and probably we felt, not to the same degree as he did, but we've probably felt the pull of the tide, uh, haven't we? We know what that feels like, at least to a limited degree. But you don't need to have been a Christian very for very long, to have experienced another kind of swimming against the tide, do you? Uh, To follow Christ in a world that generally doesn't is to swim against the tide, isn't it? You know, whether you're at school or whether you're at university or whether you're in the workplace or whether you're around your, your friends and your family, what we stand for because of who we follow will cause us to swim against what often feels like a very strong tide, doesn't it? A tide of of unchristian and sometimes anti-Christian thinking, priorities, values, practices of of the, the society around us. But of course, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, what we've been seeing in this letter of 1 John is that it's a letter that's written to people just like us, to Christians who are under pressure in a world that is opposed to God. Because this is the world that they and we live in, a world that opposes and rejects and ignores God in both its thinking and its behavior, and a world in which we, as God's people, are not to love. That was verse 15, wasn't it, of chapter 2 last week. We're not to love that world because it's a world that's passing away, in fact. Indeed, the fact that we don't love the the rebellious, the sinful systems and cultures and worldviews and societies that make up our world, that we we live in that world without being of that world, that is actually a sign that we're genuine Christians. That's been John's concern, hasn't it, through the whole letter. He's written it, chapter 5, verse 13, which I've quoted every week. He's written it to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he wants them to know that these guys are genuine Christians. 
And so they have eternal life. He wants them to be sure and certain of it and assured of it. That's his purpose for writing the letter. And he's been showing them as we've gone through the letter, hasn't he, what to, what to look for. You know, the signs, the tests, if you like, that, that, that they are genuine Christians. Uh, both certain truths about Jesus Christ that genuine Christians believe and also certain ways that genuine Christians will live because true faith in Christ makes a difference to how you live and, and especially we've heard in how, in how you love, how you love your, your brothers and sisters in Christ, how you love those around you. And of course he wants them to know all of this because there, as we've seen there are sort of false teachers who are running amok uh, among the churches uh, who don't believe the truth about Jesus. In fact they've been denying his deity, that he is genuinely God in the flesh. And they've been failing to live distinctive lives for Christ as well. Indeed, they've, they've been insisting that either sin doesn't matter or, or that sin doesn't exist. You can just live how you want. So as we come to this morning's verses here, uh, in, mostly in chapter 3, it, it's how we live that is his focus here once again. And he frames this in terms of, in terms of family likeness, if you like. As Christians, we are God's children and so we should live as his children. We should be those who display the, the family likeness in how we live. Uh, John acknowledges that this is hard. Uh, it feels like swimming against the tide. But we can make progress in this. We can grow in holiness and become more like Christ. And actually we must if we claim to be children of God. Holiness is not a kind of optional extra for super Christians right like nice if you can manage it but it's too hard for me now John's message here and it's kind of verse 10 sums it up in his normal blunt way John's message is that by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. In other words, holiness is the mark of normal Christianity. It's what distinguishes the, the genuine Christian from someone whose faith is just nominal. Right? Holiness is a sign that your faith in Christ is real and not fake, in other words. So the question it kind of throws up for us is, are we displaying the family likeness? Right? Are, are we... It, 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 are we displaying that in our life? That's the kind of the question that goes begging, isn't it? And, and as we go through these verses, you'll see John gives us three encouragements to be holy, three reasons why we should be, uh, if you like. Um, I couldn't help, I had a song going over in my head as I was preparing this in the week. Do some, of you, some of you will remember from the 1970s, Ian Jury and the Blockheads. Any, anybody remember Ian Jury? Yeah, well done, John. So somebody, a few of you do. Yeah. Ian Jury and the Blockheads sang in the 1970s, I think it's about 77, somewhere like that, Reasons to be Cheerful, one, two, three. Do you remember that? Right, Reasons to be Holy, okay? One, two, three. It's a bit of a niche, it's a bit of a niche way in, but bear with me. Here's, here's reason number one. It's because of who we are, okay? Reason number one to be holy is because of who we now are. Ah, oh, have a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So, so who are we? John says, chapter 3, verse 1, we are children of God. Okay, and how has that happened? He kind of hints at it in the verse above, doesn't he? Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, becoming a Christian is not simply something that we do. Okay, it's not something we inherit from our parents. It's not something we pick up from our culture. We live in a Christian country, so therefore we're Christians. I don't think we do live in a Christian country, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, but becoming a Christian, in other words, requires new birth. That, that phrase, you know, you've probably heard it a few times, born again, is, is often used in a rather derogatory way, isn't it, to talk about Christians. Oh, you're not one of those, those born again types, are you? But friends, the Bible is very clear. There is no other type. Right? Jesus himself says it very clearly to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, doesn't he? John chapter 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there isn't another type of Christian other than a born-again type. We must be born of him, as he puts it here. We must be, in other words, regenerated by the Spirit of God, which, of course, on our part means admitting our sin, um, admitting our need of rescue, the rescue that Jesus alone offers us through his death on the cross in our place, and then turning around, that's what the word repent means, turning away from our sin, from, from living without him, and turning to him, living with him as our rescuer and also as our ruler. And if you've done that, you are a child of God. You're a Christian. You're born again. And you can see here just how amazed, how excited John is about that. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You, do you get the language? It's kind of just look at the sort of love that the Father's given us. It's, it, it's extraordinary love. John's just, he's, he's thrilled, he's amazed that people like him and, and people like you and people like me could be called children of of God. That kind of love, that's extraordinary, that's staggering, but that is exactly who we are. So what does it mean then to be children of God? In, in John's day, to be a child, uh, especially a son, but to be a child was to be an heir. So it was to inherit the father's estate. And that included adopted sons as well, of course. Adopted sons had all the rights of, of natural-born children. So, so John's point here is that for us to be kind of spiritually adopted into God's family as his children means we'll be heirs of his kingdom. And that's, that's just staggering to John. What kind of love is it that means that we are children of God? Friend, I wonder if that staggers you. It ought to, didn't it? I, I don't know about you, but when I take a look inside my heart, if I'm honest, when I see the depth of sin that still lurks there, I'm, I'm not sure why anyone would love me. Let alone the perfect, the holy God of the universe. Because he can see way more of my sin than you can. In fact, he can see way more of my sin than I can. 
but he loves me just the same. And if you're a Christian this morning, he loves you like that too. He has lavished on you the most extraordinary love. Love that has given you rebirth as one of his precious children. Someone for whom he suffered and died. So that you can be brought into his family and made an heir of his kingdom. Someone that he will never let go. That's staggering, isn't it? He's made you his child. Do you realize how deeply he must love you to have made you his child? To make somebody as desperately sinful as you are and as I am into one of his children. But that is who we are. And John wants us to know it, right? It's a precious truth and he wants us to be sure of it, right? To know just how precious we are to him, just how loved we are by him. Indeed, so loved, as the Apostle Paul puts it, uh, that nothing in the whole of creation can separate us from that love. Friends, let's not either take it for granted nor be kind of paralysed by the fear that one day he's just going to get so fed up with us that he'll take that love away. He won't. If you're a Christian, you are a precious, deeply loved child of God and John wants you to be certain of it. Yes, it's amazing that he would do that. But friends, we don't need to doubt it. We, we need to let it fire our souls to love him and, and serve him. But the fact that we are God's children is not only a truth that he wants us to be sure of, it's a truth that gives us a kind of an obligation as well, an obligation to display the family likeness. So have a look at verse 29 again. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Do you, do you see the point? He's kind, of, he's kind of framing it like a spiritual paternity test, uh, if you like. I guess in a, you know, in a world of many partners, uh, these are becoming more common, aren't they? Uh, where a, you know, the, the paternity of a child is determined by you know, like giving a, a DNA sample from the, the likely candidates to determine which of them is the, is the father of the child. John is saying here there's a kind of a spiritual paternity test you can take to see if you really are a child of God. It's not a DNA test. <laughs> it's a, it's a behaviour test. It's a holiness test. And, and it's not a test applied to the father. It's a, a test applied to the child. Right? Because God is righteous, verse 29, he, he acts in a righteous way. He's pure. He's holy. And if God is righteous and you are his child, then you will act in the same way. You'll display the family likeness. The claim that you're one of his children, in other words, will be evidenced in your living. There'll be growth in holiness over the years as you start to behave more like your spiritual father. People are going to be able to look at you and say, ah, oh, you know, like father, like son, or like father, like daughter. You see, so, so yes, to, to be his children is to be precious to him, greatly loved by him. But this new family brings with it a new set of family values. 
And if our lives give no evidence of displaying that family likeness, well, we need to take a look at our lives. Because John is clear here that the true child of God will display his father's characteristics. And of course, it, it, that begs the question for us, doesn't it? Does, does my life display the family likeness? Does it evidence the claim that I am, in fact, his, his child? So reason to be holy, number one, right, is because of who we are. It's, it's because we're children of God. But you'll see there's a second reason here as well, uh, reason to be holy, number two. This is to do with what we are becoming, okay, which is like Christ. Okay, have a look at uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, yes, we've, we've got wonderful blessings now. We're, we're children of God. We're, we're adopted into his family. We're co-heirs uh, with Christ. But there's more to come. Okay, indeed, what we will be, verse 2, has not yet appeared or it's not been uh, yet made known. So he, he's not saying that our salvation is in any doubt. He, he's saying that none of us can fully comprehend now what we will be when Christ returns. But one thing is for sure, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. In other words, friends, this is our future as children of God. We will see Christ, okay? not like people on earth 2,000 years ago saw him, but as he now is, right, in all of his, his heavenly glory and splendor and purity. And as we see him, he will transform us to be like him, right? Like him in all of his purity. That, that process of, of making us like him that he started in us when we became his children, he will finish and complete when we see him face to face, when we will be made perfectly holy and perfectly pure, just as he is perfectly holy and perfectly pure. So John is saying we can't comprehend the fullness of what we will be, but what we do know is that we will see him and we will be like him. Do you long for that day? Do you long for it when you'll be truly home and you'll see him face to face and you'll be with Christ and you'll be like Christ? Do you long for that day? Because, friends, that is what we've been saved for isn't it? You know, we've been saved from our sin. We've been saved into his family. We've been saved for heaven, for eternity, haven't we? we we've been rescued in order to be with Christ and like Christ. And friends, when that's what we long for, when that is our desire, well, it impacts how we live now. Doesn't it? Verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him 
purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see? If you know that your future is to be with Christ and to be like Christ, if that's your future hope, then you will want to prepare yourself for that future now. You'll want to purify yourself because the one you love and follow and will spend eternity in the presence of is pure. So you'll want to be too. Now, when John uses that phrase, purifies himself in verse 3 he's not saying we can kind of wash our own sins away as it were so purify ourselves only Christ and and his work on the cross uh, can do that but rather he means that that we will be those who battle the sin in our lives not not those who flirt with the sin in our lives but those who flee from it who who hate sin and love holiness and, and so long to be free of it you know, and, and, and intentionally work towards that end. We will want to be pure as our saviour is pure. And one day we will be. So we're heading in that direction now. Because that's what we long for. That's what we desire above everything else. And we can see what that means in practice, friends, can't we? It means that, that Christians are never satisfied with our present level of holiness. Right? We're always longing to grow, grow in our purity, grow in our Christ-likeness, wanting to be more godly. Why? Well, because our true home is heaven. Our future is to be with Christ and like Christ forever. We'll, we'll be sinless, we'll be perfect, like, like him. And so if we're at all looking forward to that, we'll want to prepare now for what that future is going to be like. Uh, a long time ago now, I used to do quite a lot of uh, uh, overseas travel. And um, in, in the lounge, um, in, in, in one of the bookcases in our lounge, um, there is kind of left over from those years of travel. There's a, there's a kind of collection of travel guides to different countries. And I bought them at various times to prepare me for what to expect when I visited somewhere new. Some of the places I, I went to. When you, when you step off the plane, uh, you know, the culture, the, 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 the weather, the clothing, the language, a load of other things as well was often very different. So I'd want to be prepared for whatever my destination was going to be. And it's like that for us as Christians, isn't it? Our destination as children of God is heaven, where we will be with Christ and like Christ. And so the Christian who's longing for that day will want to be preparing now for where he's heading and what he's becoming. And we're heading for heaven. And we're becoming more like Christ. And so if we're at all pleased about that, we'll be starting to live like him now. And, and how do we do that? How do we grow in holiness and purity? Get the answer, I think, in the first verse of, of our passage in chapter 2, uh, verse 28. Have a look at it. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Do you see? We need to abide in Christ or, or continue in Christ. In other words, we continue trusting him. We, we continue trusting his gospel to, to save us. We continue walking in his ways. We abide in him. And that is how we can be confident and unashamed not shrinking back in shame, at his coming. Do you see? We need to abide in him, keep trusting in him and walking in his ways because to move away from him 
means to lose our confidence on the day of judgment when he returns. It's to, to move away from him, is to stand before him on that day ashamed instead of confident. And so if we've got no desire now to grow in holiness and purity and preparation for that, that day of his coming, if we're just not really bothered about that, if we don't bother to battle the sin in our lives, if we're just happy to flirt with it instead of flee from it, if we're not displaying the family likeness, and so our confidence will go. We'll feel ashamed before Christ. Do you, do you see? That's actually a real warning to us, isn't it? To continue in Christ and to grow in Christ, to keep going his way, you know, to to root yourself in his word applied by his spirit, as we saw earlier in chapter two. That's how we grow in in holiness, in godliness. So reasons to be holy, one and two, right? We should be holy because of who we now are. We're children of God. We should be holy because of what we're becoming, which is like Christ. Here's a Here's reason to be holy number three. This is to do with what we have been rescued from uh, in, in verses four to ten. Ha- have a look at uh, verse four where, where John explains why we need rescuing. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And, and that, that really gets right to the heart, I think, of why our sin is so offensive to God, so repugnant, repulsive to God. See, we, we might look at some kinds of sin, you know, we might look at I don't know, terrorism, or we might look at murder, or we might look at rape, or something like that, and, and view that as repulsive, re, re, repugnant. But often we tend to view our own sin, which probably hasn't included those things for many of us, we tend to view our own sin as just being you know, like my personal little foibles. You know, some, some quirks, some, some imperfections, that kind of thing. Things which sort of trouble us a bit, but which we can't really do much about. It's just the way I am. You know, there's not much point in, in, in taking the time to really try and get rid of those things. I might as well just live with them. It's not, they're not really that big a deal anyway, are they? John here calls sin lawlessness. And and to act in a lawless way is to say that the lawmaker doesn't really matter. He's just an irrelevance. To to, to act with lawlessness, bluntly, to act with lawlessness is like sticking two fingers up to God, to the God of the universe. Do you see, it's an act of contempt. It's an act of defiance. And, And not... Uh, remember, to some, some distant, some uncaring, some authoritarian lawmaker, but to the loving Father who's lavished his love on us. Right? Lawless is saying that his, his beautiful and righteous law is just not worth bothering with. Right? It stinks. It doesn't really matter. It's of no regard. See, that's what lawlessness is, do you see? So, so friends, perhaps the reason why we don't hate our sin more, why why we're not bothered enough to to do anything about it very often, is because we just don't see it from God's perspective. We don't see how much it degrades us and dishonors him. That's how disgusting our sin is to a holy God, a pure God. And that is why we need rescuing from it which is exactly what God has done. And and John tells us how he's done it. Look, verse uh, 5. 
you know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. So how has God rescued us from our sin? Well, he's done it by coming into our world to deal with it. It's the reason he came, to take away sin by dying on the cross in our place as the, as the perfect substitute for our sin. Perfect because in him there is no sin, verse 5. And friends, that, that actually confirms to us, doesn't it, just how appalling our sin is. Right? Do, do we think that, that if the nature of our sin was such that it could have been dealt with in any other way, other than by Christ having to have been tortured and killed for it, that God wouldn't have picked another way? Of course he would. But such is the offense of our sin, such is the seriousness of our sin, that there there was no other way. Uh, But look, um, uh, Jesus' rescue doesn't only take away our sin, but it also, uh, end of verse 8, It's also destroyed the works of the devil. So so when Jesus died on the cross, the greatest works of the devil, sin and death, were kind of dealt the fatal blow for, for, for good. And of course the devil, he is the lawless one, isn't he? Par, par excellence. He opposes God with, with every ounce of his being, every fiber of his being. Hence, at the beginning of verse 8, John says that those who make a practice of sinning show themselves not to be children of God, but to have the devil as their spiritual father instead. So if Jesus came to take away sin, to destroy the works of the devil, what does that mean for us who claim to follow him? Well, have a look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous. Uh, Or verse uh, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning since the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. John couldn't be much clearer there, could he? He's saying basically the way that you live reveals whose child you are. Which means, verse Uh, Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Uh, Or verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Do you see? Now, of course, we we need to be a little bit careful here, don't we? John, John is not saying... If I sin, then I'm of the devil. He's not saying that, as though I need to be perfect, you know, in order to show myself to be a real Christian. He's, he's not saying that. He's already said, hasn't he, back in chapter 1, if we do claim to be without sin, well, we deceive ourselves. The, the, the truth isn't in us. And so when we do sin, we confess our sin. And, and God is faithful and he's just and he forgives our sin. He cleanses us from our sin. So he's clearly not saying that a true Christian never, never sins. He's not saying that at all. And actually, neither do I think he's, he's saying simply that, that sort of habitual sin is, is, is out for, for the Christian. So that if you keep on repeating the same sins, you need to question whether you're a true Christian. I mean, I, I think there is something in that. But I don't think that's what John is, is getting at here. You'll notice like verse 6, for example, our English translations say, 
Uh, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Uh, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. But actually in the original, that that phrase keeps on is not there. Um, uh, um, It just says, uh, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. that, 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 That keeps on phrase there is absent. So the point, I think, John is making here is that is that sinning is not what God's people do okay I I often some of you have heard this so many times you'll be fed up with it by now but I often illustrate this point from my years as a school governor Um, when I was a a governor at school there there were there were rules posted up around the the building you know uh, the one I uh, often remember is don't run in the corridors Okay, that was the rule. Don't run in the corridors. Of course, kids did run in the corridors, didn't they, sometimes? But if a teacher caught them doing that, they would say, please don't run in the corridors. We don't do that here. Of course, it could be argued they do do that here because little Johnny has just been running in the corridors, hasn't he? But, but the point is that running in the corridors is not acceptable here. That's not what we do in this school. We walk in the corridors. We don't run in the corridors. We're not a running in the corridors kind of school. We're a walking in the corridors kind of school. Do do you see? So, in other words, be what you are and and don't do what we don't do here. In fact, a a teacher might might fairly say, are are you actually a part of this school? I'm sorry, are you part of this school? Because we don't run in the corridors here. We walk in the corridors. So, are, are, are you sure this is your school? Do you see the point? If it is, you better start walking in the corridors. <laughs> and I think this is kind of the, the logic that, that John is using here, what he's in talking about sin. People who have been born again, we don't sin. Right? That's not what we do. Sin is not what God's people do. It's, sin is incompatible with who we are. This, that, I think that's the point that John wants us to see. When we, when we nurture bitterness in our hearts towards others... Okay, when we allow lust to creep into our thinking or our actions or, or hatred or, or pride or lying or, or drunkenness or a foul mouth or whatever it is, we're being lawless, right? We're sticking two fingers up at God and saying that his glorious law given by a, a loving father to his precious children is just really nothing to be worried about. That, that's what sin is. And John's point is it's totally incompatible with the Christian life. And John wants us to see that so that we will hate sin, so that we'll be revolted by sin, and so not give up fighting sin in our lives. We are born of God, verse 9. His seed abides in us. And if we really get the significance of what we've been rescued from, well, then we're done with sin. Right? It's got no place in us anymore. We'll hate it. It's not an option for us. It's not what we do. Reasons to be holy. One, two, three. Reasons that are caught up with our, our present, our, our future, our, our past. In other words, who we now are, which is children of God. What we are becoming, which is like Christ. What we've been rescued from which is a life of lawlessness. So going forward, let's be who we are. Verse 10, I think sums it up quite well. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
And friends, the challenge for us here, in, in the light of who we are as his forgiven, accepted people is, are we displaying the family likeness? Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, please, in the light of your word to us, we rejoice in the cross that forgives us because of Jesus. Uh, But we're also called here to examine our hearts, to examine our lives in the light of your word, with the, the help of your indwelling spirit. Challenge us and help us to be who we are to be who we are becoming, to live in the light of what we've been rescued from and what we are rescued for, a life of holiness, eternity to come. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.